afternoon and welcome to the Live Poet Society, where we read aloud literature in real time and chat about it. I'm your host, Hattie Rensbury, and this is our spooky Halloween show. No tricks, just treats today for my Halloween offerings to you, the listeners. Now is the moment where we talk a little bit about some of the newest releases on the New York Times uh, book release list that I think sound interesting. These are for the benefit of your personal reading list and also for the benefit of mine. So let's start with Our Missing Hearts by Celeste Ng. The genre is dystopian fiction, and here's the description that you'll find most book vendors using. Twelve-year-old Bird Gardner lives a quiet existence with his loving but broken father, a former linguist who now shelves books in a university library. Bird knows not to ask too many questions, stand out too much, or stray too far. For a decade, their lives have been governed by laws written to preserve American culture in the wake of years of economic instability and violence. To keep the peace and restore prosperity, the authorities are now allowed to relocate children of dissidents, especially those of Asian origin, and libraries have been forced to remove books seen as unpatriotic, including the work of Bird's mother, Margaret, a Chinese-American poet who left the family when he was nine years old. Our Missing Hearts is an old story made new of the ways supposedly civilized communities can ignore the most searing injustice. It's a story about the power and limitations of art to create change, the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children, and how any of us can survive a broken world with our hearts intact. I personally have a soft spot for dystopian fiction. It's dark, generally, and tends to bring out the hardest things to talk about, especially in our modern society that we generally consider ourselves too good for, even if we're guilty of them. So if you're looking for something that will allow you to examine your life and our society through a dystopian fiction lens, I imagine Celeste Eng's piece, Our Missing Hearts, is the way to go. That's Eng, N-G, Eng, for their last name. The next one that I thought would be really interesting to talk about because it's a coming-of-age story by genre, and it's inspired by the work of Charles Dickens, which is right up the alley of this pop, uh, public affairs show, and it's called Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. It's gotten a lot of different reviews throughout the internet. There was quite a bit of buzz when it was released. So let me read you the description and you can decide for yourself. Demon Copperhead is set in the mountains of southern Appalachia. It's the story of a boy born to a teenage single mother in a single wide trailer with no assets beyond his dead father's good looks and copper-colored hair, a caustic wit, and a fierce talent for survival. 
In a plot that never pauses for breath, relayed in his own unsparing voice, he braves the modern perils of foster care, child labor, derelict schools, athletic success, addiction, disastrous loves, and crushing losses. Many generations ago, Charles Dickens wrote David Copperfield from his experience as a survivor of institutional poverty and its damages to children in his society. Those problems have yet to be solved in ours. Demon Copperhead speaks for a new generation of lost boys and all those born into beautiful, cursed places they can't imagine living, leaving behind. Now that sounds just dramatically, tragically beautiful, and this one I'm personally very intrigued by, um, simply because of the way that it's set and the, you know, the issues that they're very much confronting. But that's for you to decide for yourself. <clears throat> now, we're going to move into some content and trigger warnings because this is a spooky episode. So, if you jump at your own shadow or can't stand horror movie theater previews, Listen at your own preference. A poem submitted by local poet Owen Farrell will play next. Owen O'Farrell, pardon me. As a note, there are references in this to controlled substances and some concepts of decay that may upset particular listeners. If you would like to rejoin us afterwards, feel free to return in about five to six minutes. <clears throat> and now... Owen O'Farrell. The last bits left, and they've all come out of the woodwork to feast on the worms. In my stomach, I used to have butterflies, but now there is a hive of hornets brooding in my emptiness. I thought they were bees, but they make no honey. When I'm anxious, I can feel them crawling up my esophagus so I smoke to calm them down. Marijuana, nicotina, whatever stops the stinging. I couldn't stop you from taking a hit, too. And when you did, you pressed your lips against mine, sharing smoke and saliva, tongue in my mouth like the barrel of a shotgun. When you blow my mind, there will be nothing left but splintered wood, the sleepy hollow of a man. Sanguine roses grow from my broken bones, rooted in my marrow. They bloom in the moonlight, a feast for Lepidoptera. Those butterflies and moths eat holes in my midnight garden. I can feel the larva burrow into my skin. The hungry wasps invite them in. The cardinal sins, they all begin, gobbling down with voracious grins. Will you feast on me, my carrion queen? The last bit's left. And they've all come out of the woodwork to feast on the worms. Come drink from the wood, sip from the hollowed trunk where once there was a hermit and a crucifix within. But there is no nectar. The waters are made bitter, absinthian. From the night sky a great star fell, blazing like a torch, and it fell upon me. Now I am but a wisp of acrid smoke, a shadow of the boy I once was, burned and bitter as wormwood. And now we're welcoming to the studio Owen O'Farrell. Hello, everybody. Who contributed this piece. 
Owen, do you want to talk a little bit about this? Yeah, so uh, I wrote this poem uh, deep in the midst of 2020, so we were all going through the dark times, as it were, stuck indoors during the pandemic. So I had a lot of things brewing in my mind, um, and I'd been watching the series Wormwood on Netflix, and uh, they have a reference to a Bible passage from the book of Revelations talking about a star falling from heaven, and it made me look into that passage and the idea of Wormwood in se itself, how it's used to make absinthe, and I just tried to incorporate all those ideas, this growing garden and um, the bitterness of the plant. Um, yeah, I definitely feel like that comes through, especially with some of your word choices. Absinthian is one that we don't get to hear a lot these days, especially since it's a much less popular, you know, form of um, alcohol than it once was. Yeah, um, I like trying to use those more archaic words and evoking a time of the past, like uh, one of the lines in there, um, the hermit and the crucifix within is a reference to the first chapter of Moby Dick. Um, in Loomings, he talks about an artist painting a dreamy little scene um, and how you could see this pasture and this guy sleeping beneath a tree where once there was a hermit and a crucifix within. So I allude to that time of the 1800s just with that one little line and the sure. way I adapted it. Yeah, that's an interesting choice. Um, why Moby Dick? Uh, Moby Dick is just one of those stories that I really enjoy reading. Um, I am fascinated by that period of time. Um, I'm fascinated by the setting. Uh, in that first chapter, it starts out talking about New York, and I grew up in the city. Um, so hearing his description of things a hundred years before I ever came around is really interesting. And he talks about just the magic. Um, and I feel like all his words have a certain magic. He takes you in a much deeper journey of the mind, um, of Ishmael. Um, and, uh, for the last couple of years, I've been working on world building. Uh, I do D, D when I'm not writing uh, poetry. Uh, so I've taken a lot of inspiration from that as well. Very clearly, yeah, you have a lot of um, really intentional choices in regards to giving us settings and sounds and smells and shapes. <laughs> yeah, I, I try to transport them as much as I am when I read them. Understandably so. Well, thanks for coming on in, Owen. I really appreciate you joining us. And um, congrats on being the very first guest on the Live Poet Society. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. That was Hollow by Owen O'Farrell, a local poet who performed his own piece. There's something really special about hearing a piece from the mouth of the person who's written it. And I can say this uh, as someone who just ad adores literature and poetry, but I think a lot of people can speak to the trueness that comes out when you hear someone read it in exactly the way that they had formulated it to be read. Um, in the way that if someone writes a movie script and then plays one of the roles, 
they bring a certain amount to it that maybe wouldn't have been quite the same if somebody else had filled in for that particular moment. So it was just so very special to have someone already who had written a piece on this show um, perform and and so kindly offer up a piece of art to me and to our listeners. Uh, if you are a poet local to the Roaring Fork Valley, please feel free to reach out. Um, I would love to have more local poets on and have them share their work. As a heads up, the next piece features a brief instance of a mild door slamming sound effect. You heard that right. Just to let you know beforehand. When you put the word Antigonish into Google, you'll get a few things. Firstly, an internet argument about whether or not it's pronounced Antigonish or Antigonish. This is my show, and I'm more familiar with the pronunciation of the Greek play Antigone, so we're going to go with Antigonish. Secondly, a charming town of the same name in Nova Scotia, with less than 5,000 people. Photos of leaves in shades of green, orange, and red surrounding historic red brick buildings pop up across your screen, along with images of their local liberal arts university. <laughs> it looks idyllic, like something out of a Hallmark movie where you'd see a young couple walking down the street with warm cups of coffee in their hands in November. Apparently, the town is also a stronghold of local Gaelic culture, and the local Highland Games have been happening since 1863, given the large amount of Scottish and Irish immigrants that moved to the area. For those of you that don't know, uh, Nova Scotia is in Canada. Wasn't sure how many might not know that. The third answer in your Google search, with your window open, filling your screen, hmm, is perfect for this show. Supposedly inspired by this Nova Scotian town is a poem by William Hughes Mearns. Let's listen to a recording kindly done by local actress Courtney Lindgren and then learn some more. Yesterday, upon the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. I wish. I wish he'd go away. When I came home last night at three, the man was waiting there for me. And when I looked around the hall, I couldn't see him there at all. Go away. Go away! Don't you come back anymore. Go away. Go away. And please don't slam the door. Last night I saw, upon the stair, a little man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. Oh, how I wish he'd go away. Thank you very much, Courtney, for coming in and offering to record this piece. I look forward to being able to work with local performers for this show in the future. They give such wonderful depth to this show when it's not just my voice reading things. <laughs> so, for this show, we want to mention some notable references in media about Mearns' Antigonish. 
It was inspiration for an episode of the Magnus Archives, a popular horror podcast. Uh, and there was a quick parody reference in Lil Wayne's song, Pick Up Your Heart, which is probably not what any of you were expecting. Feel free to listen to the song after this episode. I definitely think it's funny to hear this sort of reference in a, in a rap song. It's great. Um, it was also the inspiration for several detective or crime show episodes. And for obvious reason, it's haunting, it's repetitive in the way that can be either unnerving or unsettling, depending on how you want to read it or listen to it. Plus, the music used for the intro and outro of this episode is a song of the same title by a thus far relatively unheard of solo artist named Polly Bolton. William Hughes Mern's autobiography notes that this piece was originally created as a song for his play called The Psycho-Ed, written as a piece for an English class at Harvard in 1899. But what might surprise you the most is that creative writing as we know it in its current form was something he was the first to teach. He explains in his book Creative Power that the, mom that the important part of the practice was self-expression as a means of growth and not poetry. The business of making professional poets, indeed few had yet been made, is still another matter with which this writer has never had the least interest. Which is a very nice way of saying that he was more interested in teaching young people to write poetry, to express themselves, and discuss their their thoughts and their feelings on things rather than creating people who may then become poet laureates or become famous writers, which has value in itself. Not everyone who learns mathematics becomes someone who works in calculus and does proofs for a living. Thus, it makes sense that not everyone who learns creative writing and examines the English language and English literature should feel the need to be professionals at that either. His ideas became popular discussion amongst educators in the late 1920s. Mearns was also a Harvard grad and spent 15 years as a professor at the Philadelphia School of Pedagogy, which continues today as Central High School, the oldest high school in Philadelphia and the second oldest continuously public high school in the United States. It opened in 1838 with four professors and 63 students. Now it's nearly 2,400 students. As Mearns has a reputation for working quite a bit with children in regards to psychology and creative writing, he even wrote poetry, parodies of his work later in life. This particular poem can be construed in different ways according to the way that it's read. It could be playful and charming or darkly confusing. Many settings see it as a more sinister piece, and that's how we had Courtney read it today, although I do recommend looking it up yourself and giving it a read-through because adding a more jaunty tone and, you know, thinking of it differently, you get an entirely different piece of poetry. And that's the exciting part about reading something like this out loud, is that a lot of it has to do with tone and intention. So I very much enjoyed that. We're going to take a really quick break. 
burns and shivers down your spine. Shrieking skulls will shock your soul, seal your doom tonight. Spooky, scary skeletons speak with such a screech. You'll shake and shudder in surprise when you hear these zombies shriek. We're so sorry, skeletons, you're so misunderstood. You only want to socialize. But I don't think we should. A spooky, scary skeleton shouts startling shrilly screams. They'll sneak them, there's a couple girls and just won't leave. You're listening to the Live Poet Society on KDNK. I'm your host, Haddison Rensbury. For those of you just now joining us, we just finished reading Hollow by local poet Owen O'Farrell and Antigonish by William Hughes Mearns, read by local actress Courtney Lindgren. Next, I have something very special. This piece is in some circles known as the Autumn People from Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. It's a piece of prose, but I just, it felt so right for this episode. It's on page 38 of my edition, or pardon me, page 192, chapter 38 of my edition. For some, autumn comes early, stays late through life where October follows September and November touches October, and then instead of December and Christ's birth, there is no Bethlehem star, no rejoicing, but September comes again, and old October, and so on down the years, with no winter, spring, or revivifying summer. For these beings, fall is the ever-normal season, the only weather, there be no choice beyond. Where do they come from? The dust. Where do they go? the grave. Does blood stir in their veins? No, the night wind. What ticks in their head? The worm. What speaks from their mouth? The toad. What sees from their eye? The snake. What hears with their ear? The abyss between the stars. They sift the human storm for souls, eat flesh of reason, fill tombs with sinners. They frenzy forth in gusts. They beetle scurry, creep, Thread, filter, motion, make all moons sullen, and surely cloud all clear-run waters. The spiderweb hears them, trembles, breaks. Such are the autumn people. Beware of them. The father of one of the main characters recites this quote as part of an old religious tract, as he and the boys are discussing a particularly unusual circus, which always appears in Octobers, a few decades apart. This is the moment when they figure out who, no, what, they're up against. I won't give you any additional spoilers past that point, but it just seemed like the perfect quote to end on for this episode, and especially given that tonight is Halloween. You may have read Fahrenheit 451 as a teenager. That may be your only exposure to Ray Bradbury. You may have seen it on banned book lists at your local library, whether in a form of protest or as a genuine reference to a personal opinion that made its way into the public reading circles and caused the novel to be pulled from shelves. There's something ironic about banning a book simply because it is about burning certain books. For me, instead of being required to read Fahrenheit 451 as expected when I saw the name Bradbury on my required reading list my junior year of high school, the title I saw was not one I had heard of before. 
Instead of forcing students to read classics that we often see in movies or on internet listicles of the 10 most important novels to read in your lifetime, my English teacher at the time chose books written by classic authors that were more thought-provoking and a little more under the popular radar. Thus, I was handed a brand new copy of The October Country and assigned certain page goals per week. When I tell you that I chewed through this book, I mean it. I savored it, indulged in the prose and relished the haunting illustrations that went along with each short story. I was always a kid that loved anything spooky. Ghost stories and legends from a litany of cultures, hopping vampires and cryptids, the October country introduced me to horror and science fiction in a way that I hadn't seen before. I thought horror was screaming and gore, not a creeping sense of dread and unease. I thought sci-fi and fantasy were Star Trek and Lord of the Rings, not snippets of fiction so close to life I could nearly touch them. But that's the way with Bradbury. He created something special and something different, and apparently other people thought that too, because his books are wildly popular. Some of his other options that are rather spooky include The Halloween Tree, Something Wicked This Way Comes, From the Dust Returned, and a variety of his short stories that might just tickle your fancy and also may make you unable to sleep at night. (laughs) But again, like I said, his influence is absolutely everywhere. Contemporary writers like Stephen King, Shinichi Hoshi, Neil Gaiman, and Joss Whedon are just a few of the ones that people often attribute, you know, Ray Bradbury as one of their influences. And it's safe to say that my high school English teacher effectively introduced our class to an understandably important author through exactly the kind of fiction that would get my attention. Thank you, Mr. Vanderveer. <laughs> there is something special about spooky literature. There's something about it that makes us deeply interested in something that makes our skin crawl and the chilly bumps go right up your arms. There's something about being unable to go to sleep at night because you're wondering maybe, just maybe, there is something under the bed. Bradbury is quoted as describing Halloween as tasting darkness, but thrilled by the encounter because we are alive to savor it. It is somewhat similar to leaving the dentists after a tooth pull and being unable to keep our tongue out of the deep pit from which the tooth vanished. We taste blood and a small bit of our mortality. And that's what it is, isn't it? We use things like this to better understand our mortality because our lives are so very short. And there's something beautiful about that. I think we're going to wrap up real quick with a couple of little notes. Halloween is today. It is also, unfortunately, the time of year when people think it is appropriate to wear offensive, misogynistic, or racist costumes. It is 2022. We're not doing that anymore. Please celebrate with respect and in a costume that requires more creativity than prancing around in a racist stereotype. Also, Dia de los Muertos is happening on November 2nd, which is Wednesday. This is a great time for me to mention that although the festival falls near Halloween, it is 
and it is deeply associated with death and has a lot of skull symbolism. It is not a creepy or spooky holiday. Today is a great day for you to look up any Dia de los Muertos events near you this week and to respectfully attend the festivities. Music from this episode included Polly Bolton's Antigonish and Spooky Scary Skeletons by Andrew Gold. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the works of O'Farrell, Bradbury, and Mearns. This has been the Live Poet Society on KDNK. Stay warm, stay safe, and stay spooky, everybody. And remember, tonight, to never, ever drink and drive. Heavy in the head that wears the crown of gold Many of the martyr dying to be sold There's a man outside in a suit of black Fingers at the window going down